And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. In our evening services, we are working through the Ten Commandments and understanding their meaning and relevance for us today. And this evening, we come to the second commandment in verses 4 through 6. But before we hear God's word, let us ask the Lord for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we continue to thank you for the goodness of your law, which you have given us to expose our sin, to point us to our Savior, and to teach us how to live in light of our salvation. I pray that this evening, as we hear your word once again, you would do just that, that you would help us to turn away from our own wills and works to trust in Christ, and that as we live lives of faithful worship to you, we will worship in the ways that you have commanded. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Our Lord says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. When Jehu became king of Israel, he made an all-out assault on Baal worship in the land. He killed all of Baal's priests and prophets. He tore down the pillar and house of Baal. We read in 2 Kings, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. And in doing this, Jehu was obeying the first commandment, which we talked about last week. You shall have no other gods before me. However, Jehu in this Religious cleansing did not destroy the golden calves that were set up in Bethel and in Dan. For when the kingdom of Israel split in the days of Rehoboam between Israel in the north and Judah in the south, Jeroboam, the first king in the north, didn't want his people to travel down south to Jerusalem where the temple was. Figured if, if people leave the north and go to the south to worship God as he commanded, well, then they're going to start be lo being loyal to the king of Judah. So he built, fashioned two golden calves, setting them up in the cities of Bethel and Dan, and told Israel, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, this wasn't Baal worship. It was not worshiping 
other gods. But it was still false worship because it was an attempt to worship the right God in the wrong way. And so, even though Jehu later obeyed the first commandment, in light of his failure to destroy Jeroboam's golden calves, the author of 2 Kings says, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. He obeyed the first commandment. He didn't obey the second commandment. Because the first commandment tells us that the object of our worship matters. It matters that we are worshiping the right God. The second commandment tells us that the way of our worship equally matters. For idolatry is not only worshiping the wrong God. Idolatry can be worshiping the right God in the wrong way. God-glorifying worship is worship God's way. And this is what the second commandment teaches us. So I'll ask three questions this evening. First is, what is the command? Second, why should we obey the command? And third, how should we obey the command? Number one, what is the command? And you see it beginning in verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, the second commandment is clearly dealing with physical representations of God. And it says, you do not make those for any reason. So you hear that part of the command. You shall not make these images at all. But furthermore, we are never to worship any representations of God. It says you shall not bow down to them or serve them. But we would be wrong to think that this commandment is merely about making images. More broadly, Speaking, this commandment is about the way of worship as a whole, and it tells us that our worship should never be self willed. We have no right and we have no freedom to worship God as we choose, as opposed to how He demands. The second commandment is telling us God directs the way of our worship. When Aaron, the high priest, fashioned the first golden calf in the wilderness after Israel came out of Egypt. Again, Aaron was not trying to lead the Israelites to worshiping some other god than Yahweh. He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. And again, when he points to the golden calf, he says, here's the God who led you out of Egypt. So he was trying to worship Yahweh, yet Yahweh is very angry. And he says to Moses, 
Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. That should give us pause when we think there is a way we can worship God that makes him want to consume us with fire. When Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, authored fire to the Lord, it says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. So they're, they're doing this to worship God. But the Lord says, I, I didn't tell you to do that. It says they offered unauthorized fire, which the Lord had not commanded. And so God consumed them with that fire. Unless we think that's just a Old Testament thing. God really cared about how we worship in, him in the Old Testament. Doesn't really care what we do in the New. The author of Hebrews tells us to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. At the very least, it should cause us to pause and say, I should probably take the way of worship seriously. Now, I want to be clear that God's anger is not with religious art or symbols. The, the second commandment is, is not outlawing any kind of art or painting or aesthetic inclinations, as if churches have to all just be completely bare and ugly because God doesn't like beauty. The second commandment is not outlawing beauty. When the Lord tells the Israelites to build the tabernacle, their place of worship, later their temple, he commands them to build it in Beautiful artistic ways. They had depictions of creation and even of angels. Before the construction of the tabernacle, God even says to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. So God says, I'm, I'm giving my spirit to Bezalel so that he's going to be really skilled in all of these carvings and artistic designs for my tabernacle. So he's not against art. And some of you may have God-given artistic abilities that you can use to glorify the Lord. Art is not wrong. Objects are not wrong. What is wrong is making any kind of art or object as a representation of what God looks like or thinking that these objects will bring you closer to God or they have some kind of power of God. So we never make representations of God and we never use any kind of objects in our worship as if that's going to bring us closer to the Lord. See, the Israelites were right when God commanded them to build the Ark of the Covenant. They, they built that. But then they treated that Ark at times like it was a, a magical talisman. So when they go out to fight the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4 and they've lost some battles, they say, well, let's go get the Ark. And if we bring the Ark, well, then we're going to win. 
as if God had to go wherever the ark went, or as if the ark had some kind of power to give them victory. Part of the command, though, is that we worship God according to who he has revealed himself to be, not according to our imaginations. We worship God according to what he has said, not according to how we feel. His existence, not our experience, informs our worship. His word, not our preferences, tell us how to worship. So we worship according to God's command, not according to our choices. That's the heart of the second commandment. So why should we obey this command even today? Well, God gives us a reason. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He says, that, that's who I am. I, I do not like it when you worship in ways I, I haven't told you to. Now, when we hear the word jealousy, we often think of sinful jealousy, a feeling that's envious or suspicious or cruel. But that's sinful jealousy. There is righteous jealousy, which is the fruit of genuine love. Righteous jealousy is the holy inclination to guard what you love, what is precious to you, what belongs to you, and what deserves your protection. So a loving husband ought to be jealous if his wife is unfaithful. A loving wife ought to be jealous if her husband is pursuing another woman. If there's no jealousy there, then I'd argue there's no real love there. But our God is righteous. Our God is love, and therefore our God is a jealous God. And first, he is jealous for his own glory. He rightfully loves and cares about his own glory. And no image, no representation could possibly capture God's glory. The glory of the, cre of the creator is altogether different than the glory of any of his creation. So the only option is to exchange one for the other, as Paul says. You can't capture one in the other. And so every man-made representation of God automatically is presenting God as something less than he really is. And its very existence offends him because it diminishes him in our eyes. And how can God tolerate anything that minimizes his infinite glory, beauty, majesty, and worth? Think about how upset we get if there's some picture on social media that we think is not a very flattering picture and we want to take it down or untag ourselves in it so people don't look at that and think that's what we really look like. Well, all of our representations of God are offensive because they don't look anything like he is. As Kevin DeYoung says, the separation between God and his creation is one of the defining characteristics of biblical Christianity. 
any human attempt to bridge that chasm is not only an attempt at the impossible, but an affront to the unparalleled majesty of God. So the representations we make of God are telling us lies about who God is. For number one, God is invisible. You can't see him. At Sinai, when Israel gathers before the Lord, they hear God, but they do not see God. And recalling that day, Moses says to Israel, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fires. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And the Apostle Paul praises God as the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Jesus tells us God is spirit, doesn't have a material body. And John is clear that no one has ever seen God. So our God is invisible, and when we try to make him visible, we are trying to make him something other than he is. God is jealous for his glory, and self-willed worship diminishes that glory in our minds and in our hearts. Our idolatry says to God, I don't actually love you for the way you are. I'll worship you for how I want you to be. It diminishes the glory of his freedom. For when we worship in our own way, then we suggest, well, I, I can manipulate, I can control, I can contain God through objects or just religious practices. This was one of the appeals of Canaanite idolatry for the Israelites. It was presented to them as easy and guaranteed. You just have the right image, you make the right sacrifice, you say the right prayer, and you can get the gods to do whatever you want. It gave, or at least it, it taught them that they could have control over the gods. The Canaanites believed their sacrifices were were necessary. That's how the gods were fed. And so our worship could, could manipulate the gods. And if they didn't do what we wanted, we wouldn't give them what they needed. As I said, the Israelites tried to use the Ark of the Covenant this way when they fought the Philistines. Yet God is free to, de to determine how we worship him. He is free to go and do whatever he pleases. He does not need our worship. We need to worship God, but he doesn't need us to worship him. We cannot give him anything he does not already have. So worship is not about meeting God's needs or meeting our felt needs. Self-willed worship also diminishes the glory of God's wisdom because it says, I know better, God, how you should be worshipped than you do. My way is better than your way. And yet God has said that salvation will come by hearing his word, not by seeing him in Romans 10, 17. He says he is present wherever his Holy Spirit is. He says direct access comes to him only through the mediation of Christ, not through the mediation of any object or experience or religious practice. Yet we 
in false worship say, well, that's not good enough. If I'm to know you and believe you and and trust you, then I'm going to need something more than what you've told me to do. I'm going to need some kind of emotional experience. I I need the lighting to be just right to feel close to you. I need a specific music style to really pique my interest. So the second commandment confronts us with the challenge. Do we worship God for who he is or for who we want him to be? Do we believe that his word is enough? Do we believe that God knows what we need to know him, to draw near to him, to receive his power? Do we trust his wisdom? Do we delight in his freedom? Do we trust that he loves us? Which brings us to the other side of God's jealousy. He is jealous for his own glory, but he is also jealous for his people. He's jealous because when we're not trusting him, loving him, or being faithful to him, trying to worship him in our own way, then we are like an adulterous spouse. But he is also jealous for us because idolatry not only diminishes his glory, it diminishes our glory. What do I mean? I mean that God has already made the images that he wants in the world to reflect and show forth his glory. Those images are us. In Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He says, I'm, I'm going to make man in the way that's going to show the rest of the world what I'm like. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He designed us with a particular glory that would show forth his glory. So when we try to to use something else for that purpose, we are not only offending the glory of God, we are offending the glory of man. It is a sin against God. It is also a sin against our neighbor. It's interesting that in the middle of Ezekiel chapter 18, as several sins against neighbor are being listed, like I adultery or oppressing the poor or stealing, right in the middle of all those neighbor sins is listed lifting our eyes to idols. You might think, well, why why would that be listed in a bunch of sins in which we sin against our neighbor? Well, again, Kevin DeYoung is helpful when he says, it is because mistreating other people and worshiping idols have the same root. They are both a violation of the divine image. In one case, we are looking for God's image where it doesn't exist. And in the other case, we are ignoring God's image where it does exist. Now, clearly the Lord takes idolatry and false worship seriously. You notice that the second commandment is one of the longer commandments because God attaches a warning and a promise to it. He says, I am the Lord your I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
And again, we may ask, what exactly does that mean? Well, the warning is not saying that God puts generational curses on families, as if the dad sins in one way, and now God puts a curse on them, and the rest of the generations, at least to the third or fourth, it doesn't matter what they do, they're just in trouble. Now, certainly the sins of parents affect their children, and children often suffer the consequences of their parents' sins. But the warning is not that a son will be condemned for his father's sin, or that the children's lives will be irrevocably ruined. Because God is clear in Ezekiel 18, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And he goes on to say that if a, a son sees his father's sin and turns away from it and doesn't walk in the ways of his father, then that son will not suffer for the sin. God says the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The warning, therefore, means that if children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren follow the sinful examples of their parents, they should expect to face the same judgment. They are not excused. They don't get to say, well, I'm just doing what my parents did. I'm just living how I was raised. Our nurture does not excuse our sin any more than our nature does. So you notice God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Meaning each generation that continues to hate the Lord will face the same judgment of the Lord. So he's speaking of future generations who hate God like the former generations. We don't get to blame our parents for our sin. The promise is the opposite. God says that he delights in showing steadfast love to generation after generation after generation. If we love God like our parents, then we should expect the same blessing of salvation. We don't have to worry that his blessing will run out. The well of salvation never runs dry. And there are no exceptions to this promise. So I believe this tells us, at least those of us who are parents, that as we think about our children's future, as we think about what we're leaving behind, we all think, okay, I want to make sure I can leave behind some kind of inheritance, provide for my children's financial well-being. The greatest inheritance we can leave behind is a life of true worship, a life of faithfulness to the Lord. Our example matters. It's not determinative, but it is significant. We cannot guarantee that our children will embrace the same faith, but we can show them the faith that we pray they will embrace. Third, how do we obey the command? Well, first, I believe the commandment does warn us to guard our minds and our worship from any representations of God. We shouldn't try to 
imagine God, some appearance of God in our minds, or make them with our hands. We shouldn't casually view them in art or movies or TV shows as if they're not doing anything. Certainly, we should not worship them or use them in worship in any way. However, again, understanding the broad principle of the commandment, the overall answer is that we obey the command when we regulate our worship according to God's word. When we think about what we do in in corporate worship, the question isn't, well, did God say I can't do that? The better question is, did God say I should do that? This is what we call the regulative principle of worship, which simply means God tells us how he wants to be worshipped, and we worship him in the way that he wants to be worshipped. After all, worship is about God, not us. Our worship upholds his freedom, not our own. Therefore, we don't construct our worship services around our felt needs. We construct them around God's revealed will. But I actually don't think this restricts us in worship. I think it actually guards our freedom. It guards us from pressure to conform to every new cultural fad that's out there. Could you imagine if You're thinking about, well, what do we do in church? And our first question is, well, what do people like? Well, that changes all the time. What what I thought was, was cool when I was in college, probably not what any of you think is cool. Though I wasn't cool in college either, so I clearly failed there. Could you imagine if we constructed services trying to accommodate everyone's preference. That would be very hard, for you all have different preferences. So again, there there might be things that someone might say, you know, I think I would really get a lot more out of your sermons if you had an interpretive dancer up there. That would just make me just feel better. Well, if if I had to go based on that, well, then it's going to be really awkward for me up here. I hate interpretive dance. We cannot be bound by each other's always shifting and competing preferences. This should also guard each of us when we come to worship and and think about worship from trying to impose our preferences on, on one another. Worship is designed to please God, not attract people. Now, there is certainly freedom in the form of our worship. Not everyone is going to worship at the same time in the exact same place. Not every church needs to have the same kind of instruments or exact musical style. And it's okay that we have preferences in those things, but that's not what determines what we do. Not everyone needs to dress in the exact same way. Not every liturgy or order of service needs to follow the exact same pattern. So there will be freedom of form. 
But the elements of worship, I do believe, should be consistent. We should be praying. We should be reading, preaching, and hearing the word. We should be giving. We should be administering the sacraments. We should be confessing sin and hearing God's assurance of pardon. We should be singing praise to God with songs that are true to his word. And all of that is what God has commanded. The second commandment tells us to worship God, God's way, according to God's word. So you'll notice that on nights where we try to invite college students, we don't change our worship service. It's just not the point. We want people to hear the word of God, <laughs> whether or not everything else meets stylistic preferences. But this also means now that worship is to always be Christ-centered because Jesus is the one who has fully made God known. It is only in Christ that in a mysterious way the invisible becomes visible. For Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so we may wonder, does that change how we obey the second commandment now? I've even heard some say that in the incarnation, God broke the second commandment because Jesus took on human flesh. But, as I've argued before, I believe it is exceedingly wrong to speak of God breaking his own commands in any way. Because the law reflects the lawgiver, and so breaking the law would be God violating his own character, which he can never do. But also think about this. God the Son took on human flesh. And I noted that humanity was designed in the image and likeness of God. So there's not now some new man-made image. But furthermore, Jesus is the God-man. He is one person with two distinct yet inseparable natures, human and divine. And because of this, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And John, the disciple, says that when they saw Jesus, they saw glory as of the only Son from the Father. And Jesus said to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So this is not breaking the second commandment because Jesus does not in any way diminish the glory of God. He's not a lesser representation of God. He is the glory of God. He is the true revelation of God. He's the visible manifestation of God's invisible perfection and beauty. So God is not offended by Jesus. When the Father sees his Son, he sees himself. But that leads to the final question. Can we then have representations of Jesus? Not to worship, but for instruction. Since he took on human flesh, people could see him. And while I understand that argument, I do not agree with it. For think about what I just said. To see Jesus was to see God. 
No image of Jesus can capture his glory any more than any image can capture the glory of the Father. It necessarily diminishes it. So every image of Jesus necessarily lies about Jesus. He is the God-man. One person, two distinct, yet inseparable natures. So when we say, well, I'm just depicting his human nature, you are in some way implying that his natures could be separated. As if you could just see the humanity of Christ without the divinity of Christ. But that is not what we proclaim about our Lord. And the Bible didn't tell us what Jesus looked like. So we can't even approximate what he looked like in our artwork. And I think this suggests that God didn't want us <laughs> to make depictions of, of Jesus. For whatever we see will, whether we want it or not, create a certain image in our mind. This is one of the dangers of pictures and movies and shows with Jesus represented in them. After a while, it becomes hard not to have that face in your mind as you pray to the Lord. And I would ask, is that drawing you to Christ or to a false Christ? I once heard someone comment after watching a very popular show about Jesus. Oh, now I, I really feel like I can see Jesus when I pray. I feel like I really know him now. We know Jesus through his word. It is good to want to see Jesus. And one day we will see Jesus face to face. The invisible God will be seen in Christ. But that's not yet. And God has given us what we need to sustain our love and faith in him until that day. We want to see him, but we don't need to see him yet to love him and follow him. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So our love and joy will grow when we see Christ, but it is not diminished now. We can still know Christ and we can know God in Christ. And the way God has designed it now is that our seeing is through our hearing. We don't have the face of Christ right now, but we do have the word of Christ. And that is enough. It's enough for us. It's enough for our children. Our kids don't need to see pictures of Jesus to believe that he is real. They need to hear Jesus as we read and preach God's word to them. For God has said through Paul, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we obey and teach our children to obey the second commandment as we teach them to love Jesus and long for Jesus as they listen to Jesus. We know we, he is real because we still hear his word. We look to him as we listen to him. God glorifying worship is worship God's way, which is according to God's word, which is the word of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do 
ask that you would keep helping us grow in our love and longing for Jesus. May we long to see him more than we long for anything else. But I pray that we would keep loving and longing for him by listening to him. That we would order our lives and our worship according to his word. Give us grace. Give us peace. As we seek to be faithful to you. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to, to remain united even when we have different opinions or preferences on how we would like various things to look. We thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices. And we do pray that we would always joyfully worship you according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.